You know, Costa is going to turn, uh, turn 49 this year, uh, just a few weeks. July 4th, I think, is our birthday. We'll be 49 years old. Um, I haven't been here the whole time, uh, but I've been here for a long time. Um, Neil and Casey are, are, after 10 years of ministry, um, they're headed to Knoxville uh, this week. We're going to help them pack up and move. And uh, then we're going to begin a new chapter in our church's life. We've been in Ephesians, we've been uh, in this series, Made New to Live New. Uh, We've talked up to this point a lot about what God has done. Uh, The truth, the big truth, we talked a lot about that. Uh, Paul is going to give us a taste today of what it looks like to live new. And then the the second second half of the book, chapters 3 to 6, are really about new life in Christ. And so today we're going to have a little 30,000 foot look at that, but we're going to do it from the perspective of where we are, our context today at Coast, as we transition uh, from one era into another. You may remember uh, what you were like when you were young, or you may not, but I suggest to you that it was different. I suggest to you you were a different person uh, back in the day, as they say. And you may wonder from time to time, as you look at your life now, you may wonder, am I really the same person that I was back then? And if so, how? What is it that ties me today uh, to who I was in, you know, as, a, as a young child, as a toddler, as, as an elementary school, and middle school, and high school, and college, and, and then in your working life, in your married life, in your parenting life, in your empty nesting life, in your twilight life. And maybe we have that same question about our church. What is it that ties our church to the place in 1967 that was christened? What is it that ties our church and this community to um, Arches Ministry for 20-some years in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s? What is it that ties our church together through Neil's ministry um, in the last 10 years? What is it that's going to continue to make us us as we go forward? And Neil and Casey, you might ask, how are we the same and different as we move into a new phase in our life in Knoxville? Friends, I suggest to you that everything is different, but nothing's changed. And that is Paul's message to the Ephesians today. We know this, of course. Um, we, we, we see this in pop culture from time to time. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen the new... I get, I get flack for doing pop culture references, movies and stuff. I'm sorry. It's kind of who I am. I'll, I'll try to tone it down as much as possible, but I couldn't resist. Have you guys seen the new Star Wars movie? Yeah, Star Force Awakens. 
came out in like November. Um, you'll notice there's two posters here. One is from A New Hope, came out in 1977, uh, you know, starring Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford. Um, the classic, the original, episode four, A New Hope. Um, it's, this, it's this incredible story of an orphan uh, on an outer desert planet who um, discovers randomly that he has special gifts and abilities. And it turns out that uh, these special gifts and abilities are going to allow him to, uh, to lead the rebellion against the evil empire and destroy this massive, you know, terrible machine that rules through terror. In 2015, a brand new movie came out. In this brand new movie, there's, um, I can't remember her name, but she's the, the, the girl is, is now the, the new, uh, Ray, yeah, right, Ray. She, she's a, it's a brand new story, brand new movie. Uh, she's this orphan on this desert planet, and she finds out that she's got these special powers, and these special powers are going to help her lead this, this plucky rebellion to throw off this evil galactic empire and their terror machine. Everything's different. Nothing's changed. Maybe this is a little more familiar to you. Um, we sing week to week, right? Uh, we sing in, in church. And uh, we look, I think, a little more like uh, the one on the top left. It's a little more. We got pews, you know. In the bottom right, not a U2 concert, interestingly enough. Actually, a worship concert. Actually, a church, Ecclesia in Los Angeles, they did like a, a big um, worship concert. And, uh, and this photo was taken. You can see um, there's like a stage and bright lights. Um, what's so funny, though, is that despite these two ridiculously different contexts, you know, a lot of times they're singing the same song, right? In fact, we just sang a, a kind of a new version or an updated version of It Is Well. It's so funny that It Is Well, you know, written, I think, in the 1700s uh, when um, the author's uh, wife and children, I believe, had perished on a boat. Um, and he was trying to come to terms with that, and so he pours his heart out into this, this hymn that says, even though everything in life is in flux and there's danger and there's terror, that it's still, it is well. And then interesting that, that those same lyrics get picked up and they're given new life in, in, in new musical um, expressions. You know, different, different notes are being played, different instruments are being played, but, but the song is the same. Everything's different, but nothing's changed. Coast Bible Church, this is a blueprint for ministry. This is, in the context of the Ephesian church, something they've got to hold on to. You see, Jesus is gone. He's with us in spirit, yes, by the power of the Spirit. He's here in this place, but he himself is with the Father in heaven. And moreover, for the Ephesian church, Paul's gone. Paul's moved on to bigger and better things. Now he's in prison. He's awaiting execution. Uh, maybe not better, but certainly bigger, certainly different. But he's gone. And so the Ephesian church is left without him. They don't have Jesus in their midst. They don't have Paul in their midst. How do they keep the faith? How do they keep going? What does it look like to live despite the fact that so much has changed? We have just one verse today. And I'd ask if you'd please stand as we say it together. This is Ephesians 2.10. And the New King James reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. 
what I want to do today is just pick this thing apart. I want to dig into the text three, three critical um, places in this text, three textual keys, if you will, to make this text speak in a way that might be a little bit surprising. Uh, when we hear this text, I'm not sure how it hits you exactly, but I know how it hits me. And, and when, I, when I started to, to dig into it and, and really get behind the scenes and, and get underneath, I was really surprised by the way it's, it's, it's uh, the kind of ministry that it's actually... Um, uh, projecting onto the church what it's actually asking us to do. And so we're going to look uh, through the course of the sermon at three textual keys. We're going to look at workmanship, uh, you see highlight. We're going to look at good works, and we're going to look at which God prepared beforehand. And each of those three things, hopefully, will be a little bit surprising. And so when we get the whole picture back together, when we, when we, when we put it back together after we've looked at those textual keys, we're going to see kind of a vision, Paul's vision, his, his, his logic for ministry, logic for life in the church church now that he's gone and now that Jesus is gone. So let's take each in turn. For we are his workmanship. A strange word in English. Um, It actually comes from the Greek word poema. You might hear the word poem. Well, that's because that's the word poem. Uh, In Greek, if you were to talk about writing a poem, Homer's poem, you would use this word, poema. But it also can mean other things, uh, work, creation, uh, your magnum opus. Uh, let, let's pull it out a little bit. Let's see how it actually gets used uh, in some of the places in the ancient Near East, especially the, the scriptures. Look at, um, we're going to take a couple of examples. These are primarily from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the reason I want to uh, primarily look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament is because we've got some translators who are looking at specific things that are going on in, uh, in Hebrew, and they're, and they're intentionally using this word, rather than other words that can mean things like creation or work. There's a lot of different ones in Greek, and they're using this word, and I want to show you why. So let's uh, check out Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 2, 4 to 9. This word poema in the, in the LXX, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, most commonly found in, this, in, in, in Ecclesiastes. Listen to this. I made my works, my poema, great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of of the grove. I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born into my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. This is Solomon speaking about his works, his poema, his poemata, his poems. Isn't it crazy? All the different things that he categorizes as his works. Just a few here. Houses, vineyards, orchards, gardens, pools, treasures crafted of silver and gold. I didn't even mention instruments and music. These are all his poems, his crafts. The things that show that he's great. He has great power. He has great wealth. And what does he do with it? He, he creates these things, but what's interesting about these things is that they're the kinds of things that require human artistry, that require formation and crafting to bring out beauty and newness. You've been to Hearst Castle. I have. 
it's a fascinating place. The thing that's weird about Hearst Castle, Hearst was, uh, I think he was a yellow journalism. He owned newspapers back in like the 1920s. And uh, he lived out here in California, lived on the California coast. And because he just had obscene wealth and because he loved a good party, he built this uh, just palatial estate. It's massive, and they call it Hearst Castle because really it's more of a castle than a house. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's monstrous. And it's not, that, it's not that William Randolph Hearst is the first or last person to make a castle. A lot of castles out there, a lot of big houses. What's interesting about his castle is that he went over the top to kind of bring art. And, and honestly, from my perspective, it's a little bit gaudy, a little bit, a little bit trashy. <laughs> but he's, he's grabbing stuff uh, from, from Greek culture and Roman culture. He's grabbing stuff from uh, the you know, Victorian-era England. He just, he just gathers in every single possible uh, interesting artistic flourish, and he just puts it everywhere, all over the place. So you, if you go to the swimming pool at Hearst Castle, um, you're swimming underneath like two cupids, like shooting arrows and like you know uh, water's coming down. Uh, if you if you walk into uh, a bedroom, each bedroom is themed and they they uh, they kind of glamorize um, Hollywood. It's just it's just a fascinating fascinating. But the point is is that that would have been his poem, his work, because he wanted to celebrate that which was artistic, that which was beautiful in the world. Solomon does the same thing, and the Hebrew, and the Greek translators, the translators from the Hebrew in the Greek, when they when they thought about that. They use this word, poema, rather than any other Greek word that can mean creation or work or formation. Listen to Isaiah, the prophet, uh, chapter 29, 16. Isaiah says, Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He didn't make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Interesting. A rare use of this word, and it just so happens that in Isaiah, he's talking about a clay ornament, possibly a pot, possibly a statue, but something, again, that requires this artistic, creative input. Um, I just want to... Don't get too caught up in, in the text here. This is from Philo. He's uh, roughly contemporary to Jesus. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt, um, and he wrote in Greek. Uh, this is not from Scripture, but this is uh, something that he wrote. And, and just listen to the, to the language and pick out what's coming up here. This is Philo from um, The Worse Attacks the Better, Potiori. And in the account of the creative power of God, you will find no cunningly devised fable, but only unalloyed, come on, really, laws of truth firmly established. Moreover, listen to this, you will find no vocal measures or rhythm, no melodies alluring the the hearing with musical art, but only the most perfect works of virtue, which all of them have a peculiar harmony and fitness. And as the mind rejoices, which is eager to hear of the works of God, this is this word again, so also does language, which is in harmony with the conceptions of the mind, which in, in a manner is compelled to attend to them, feel exultation. Did you pick up how natural it is for Philo to use this word poema and at the same time be talking about music, art, rhythm, harmony, fitness? It's tough in Greek to hear this word without pulling out something artistic, something creative, these harmonious virtues of which he speaks. And so, and this is on your note sheet, the first thing in your note sheet, in ancient Jewish literature, poema is used primarily of artistic creations. Poema is used primarily of artistic creations. 
And so if you were to, to read this text in Ephesians, it would not be totally inappropriate for you to read, for we are his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his artistry, his masterpiece, his opus. That's one of the textual keys. Workmanship, poem, masterpiece. The next one is good works. Let's look at a couple of uh, uses. This is actually um, not very common. This, this, again, this is a slightly um, less common uh, phrase in Greek. Um, but we have a couple examples in the New Testament. I just want you to, to, to walk, with them, walk through them with me. They're both from Paul. In 2 Corinthians uh, 9, 8 through 12. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way you will have everything you need always and in everything provide more than enough for every kind of good work. And what are these good works? Paul goes on in verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Such generosity produces thanksgiving to God through us. Your ministry of the service to God's people isn't only fully meeting their needs, but it's also multiplying in many expressions of thanksgiving to God. These good works are not, it's not as if uh, there's this list, and, and so you, you wake up in the morning, and you're thinking, oh God, I'm going to do a good work for you today. And so you walk over to the list, and you're like, ah, oh, helping an old lady across the street. Very good. And so then you look, and you help an old lady across the street, and you check it off. That's not how good works, uh, good works work. There's many different expressions. They can multiply. They're, they're in every way, Paul says. The idea is that there's many forms of possibility. That it requires a little bit of creativity. In 2 Corinthians, many expressions of generosity and service. You can't just list them all out. Good works change according to context and according to you. Listen to this in 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul actually, um, 2,000 years ago, writes a little bit of a text about Marianne Fisher. This is fascinating. Put a widow on the list who is older than 60 years old, and who is faithful to her husband. She should have a reputation for doing good, raising children, providing hospitality to strangers, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in distress, and dedicating herself to every kind of good thing. In 1 Timothy, he talks about child-rearing, hospitality, humble service, helping in crisis. Imagine, imagine Marianne when she was with us. How amazing it was the way she treated us. She had in her heart a very strong sense of who Christ was and who Christ was through her. And as a result, she met you where you were. And it was, you couldn't tell beforehand when you sat down with Marianne what she was going to do. But after you had experienced it, you would have said, that was another one of her good works. Because it was a surprising, spontaneous, context-dependent expression of goodness. To put it one, another way, you might say there's no script for good works. Instead, there are only people channeling or in touch with God's character expressed in Jesus Christ first, expressed in Paul second, and then expressed in Ephesus third, and expressed in Coast Bible fourth. This is the second thing on your note sheet. Good works are creative, contextualized expressions of Jesus' character. Creative, contextualized expressions of Jesus' character. 
How interesting in that, that Timothy passage, Paul calls out washing the feet of the saints. I have never washed anyone's feet other than my own. Thankfully, uh, I, feet are weird, weird to me. I'm not a big foot person. But in that culture, it meant something. It was a value. It was important for, for people to wash each other's feet. But that's not important in our culture. That's not something that we worry about. We have running water. We have socks. We have a lot of different reasons why we don't need to wash feet. And yet, you can understand that it, it's a good work then to wash feet. Something similar, something analogous, a new expression, might be a good work now. Jesus modeled ministry in his context. Paul then adapted that in interesting ways. It's interesting that Paul was a tent maker. He didn't have to do that. He was a cobbler. But he adapted the message that he saw in Jesus to a new context, to, to, to Greek culture. And now Paul's gone, and the Ephesians are going to have to do exactly the same thing. They're going to adapt to new situations. And you and I will do the same thing as well at Coast. We already have, and we will again. The third textual key. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This third textual key, prepared beforehand. That could mean a couple of different things. Um, I've listed two, two different ways you could translate that. Foreordained or primed. I'm just going to read it again. I'm going to put each one in, and you can maybe hear the difference. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God foreordained that we should walk in them. Alternatively, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God primed that we should walk in them. Primed as in, you know, sort of set up, kind of, kind of, you know, set the table, made it ready, something like that. The first, the first four ordained, it's exact, it's immutable, it can't be changed, it's very, very specific. It's, uh, there's, there's no, it's as, as if in eternity God is looking out, looking at, at our lives and everything, and he's like, okay, Tom, I want you to do that and that, and then on uh, May 22nd, um, at, you know, during the picnic, I want you to do this for this person. And you can see that, very specific, very much like, you know, foreordained. That's one way we could read this. Another way we can read it is primed, something more like he's kind of, you know, digging up the ground a little bit so that when, when, when I go out to the picnic, there's a lot of different things that could happen. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that I could walk in these good works. But it's all set up, it's ready. Just look at them briefly. Foreordains uh, kind of a Christian determinism. Um, it's this. Uh, it's typically found mostly in the Reformed tradition in Christian faith, although it's expressed in, in many different traditions. But it, it very much uh, has the sense that there's a very direct center of the will of God. Okay, there's a very direct center, and you're either in it or you're not. You're either in the center of the will of God or you're not. Um, this, I think, uh, creates kind of a frightening, to me, tension um, with the rest of the verse because after this, uh, this word prepared beforehand, then you have that we should walk in them. And the idea is that God's got all of these things specifically pulled out for me to do. And then I start walking, and there's a danger that I might not get this one. 
And I might not get that one. And suddenly I'm outside of God's will. And suddenly I'm no longer uh, in keeping with who he wants me to be and where he wants me to go. My mission is in danger because I've failed to locate all of his good works that he set up for me. You know, don't miss out on God's will. The one of the real dangers here is it feels as if you can get further and further away from what God has for you. I uh, tend to go more with primed, if uh, you can't tell. Uh, I, I like it, first off, because it keeps with the standard sense of the term. Uh, the term in Greek can, can mean both. Um, but typically, it's the word that you'll use when you're getting ready for dinner, when you're preparing the table, right? So you have a dinner party coming up, and you know that, and so you prepare everything to get it ready. Um, and the idea is that what you're doing is you're setting up dinner so that people can come, and then spontaneity and creativity and excitement can happen right? Um, You're creating an environment designed for improvisation. Another way this word gets used very commonly is uh, before you go out to plant the seeds, uh, you prepare the field. So you might like dig up the earth a little bit. Uh, You might get some some grooves going. And so that it's set up so that when you go out and actually do uh, the planting of the seeds, you have room to make choices and, 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 and have a little bit of creativity. So this primed gives a little more emphasis on creativity. And and I I stay with that idea of a dinner party. Um, I'm not a... uh, I'm not a... Da, 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 da. I, don't, I don't like to have things, you know, super 100% drilled down. No, uh, I don't like that. It's a little bit uncomfortable for me. But there are people who are like that. I, I suggest to you, though, that um, whatever kind of person you are, type A, type B, the best dinner parties are the ones that are set up such that as soon as you sit down, you kind of relinquish control, and somebody says this, and then somebody says that, and then people start to laugh, and you're reminded of something else, and you bring that up. And at any given time, there's no right or wrong thing to say. There's lots of right things to say, and well, let's be honest, lots of wrong things to say. Your goal isn't to locate just the right thing joke to at this moment. No, your, 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 your goal is to go with the flow of the conversation. And really, what you're really trying to do is bring people together in the midst of this party, And it doesn't matter if you say this or that necessarily. What matters is that at the end, the party has brought these people who are far off together. I suggest that this is something like what Paul means when he says, God prepared these good works beforehand. And it fits, I think, with the rest of the verse. When you walk in them, you know, walking about is not a a very ordered Thing. The, the word really means does walk about. You walk about, you have a pattern, a, a set of life that's set up in this way, and so you do these kinds of things, and you go these kinds of ways, and as you're going, you're keeping up these good works. There's no weird tension, there's no fear in this way of reading. Primed, sets the stage for, readies. On your note sheet, Prepared beforehand means God sets the stage for new expressions of goodness. God sets the stage for new expressions of goodness. So we've looked at three kind of textual keys, three, three different really critical uh, elements of this verse, and we brought them out. 
we, you know, we, talk, uh, we, we talked about, um, uh, what were they? I forget. Good works and uh, you know, prepared beforehand something else. That we have them all out, right? And we've kind of dug in. I want to provide for you, and this is actually on the back of your note sheets, a creative gloss of the spirit of this text. Something that I think will hopefully ring in your ears um, to say this is the logic, this is the heart of what Paul's after as he's setting up the Ephesians to live in a new way. And you'll hear these elements as we go through it. We are God's poem for the world written in Christ Jesus to be performed in countless variations, in countless contexts, proclaiming God's gracious salvation in word and deed until our Lord returns. Everything's different, but nothing's changed. The Ephesians don't have Jesus with them. They don't have Paul anymore. And yet, they've been prepared to be a creative expression of God's character to the world, where they can adapt and recognize new circumstances, and yet they can respond to them in just the right ways, in in, in ways such that they're still proclaiming God's gracious salvation, still expressing the kind of character and deeds that Christ himself expressed, but they're doing it in ways that are surprising, they're uh, they're uh, spontaneous. Coast Bible Church, everything is different but nothing's changing. Neil, Casey, everything is different for you, but nothing's changing. It's a new era, yes, but it's the same story. An example of this. Uh, When I was living in Japan, um, I, uh, I, I dutifully tried to witness to people um, and in two years there, I had zero converts uh, to the faith, which uh, was a, a great, made me very sad. And, and the reason, I, let me just explain. So I, um, I would tell my boss, Machida-san, uh, Mr. Machida, I'd say, well, Christ died for your sins. And he'd be like, thanks, I guess. Like, all right, wh- I mean, why would, why would that matter? I'm like, well, because you're, 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 you've done things that are wrong. I've done things that are wrong. And, and, and God doesn't like that. And so we need salvation. And, and she just would be like, yeah, I just, I guess, I guess. It was always really hard for me. Um, and, and I never quite understood it. When I uh, got back to the States, I uh, read a book, um, and it had a chapter about expressing the gospel in Japan. It was by some, some missionaries to Japan, missionaries to Hokkaido, a, um, a northern, uh, the northern islands in Japan. And when they got there, they had exactly the same uh, experience that I did. They would get down, they'd be like, oh, the good news of the Lord. And then the Japanese people would be like, mm, yeah, what? Really? Um, okay. Well, I mean, and then they would even get converts. People would come to the church and they would say, well, I'm, yeah, okay, Jesus saved me from my sins. That's really great. Um, but they, it just never really connected. And then these missionaries started talking about the cross and they explained how shameful it was. And suddenly the Japanese people's ears perked up like, shame? Oh, I know all about shame. 
In that culture, in the culture of Japan, it's an honor-shame society. Uh, what your, your value is based on whether or not you are able to do right by your tribe, your family, or whether or not you fail or bring them dishonor. And so every person in Japan knows many, many times in their lives where they have brought dishonor onto their family, and they feel great shame. But they can't express it. No one can, no one talks about it. It's, it's sort of underneath the surface. It's just something you live with. And, uh, they actually have a term, gambate, uh, like, um, just soldier through, uh, is kind of a, a thing that they say. It doesn't matter how you feel on the inside. Even though you're being crushed by these feelings, you still have to press forward. And so they're all, all of them are deeply enmeshed in shame. In fact, it's one of the reasons that Japan, prob- probably one of the reasons Japan has the highest suicide rate of any first world nation. Because each person lives in this prison of shame. And so these missionaries began getting up in front of the Japanese people and saying, Christ despised the shame for the glory that was set before him. Christ bore your shame on the cross. Christ carried your shame and brings you honor, pure. And and suddenly, the church began to explode because for the first time, the story started to make sense. It had not changed at all, but had been emphasized in their culture so that they started to see themselves with Christ, just as it's very usually very easy for us to see him as paying for our sins. They were seeing him as paying for their shame identifying with them in it and being purified of it and replaced with honor. Something similar, we're moving into a new cultural context and yet, and yet, friends, everything is different but nothing's changing. Coast Bible Church, 49 years old. When Coast Bible Church, uh, when, when this property was purchased, there was nothing around. This place was desolate. In a a good way. Um, And and so this little hill, this little church on a hill with our barn overlooking the valley. And I think at the time, the five through was like a one-lane highway going south. I mean, there's nothing there. In fact, uh, what my dad said is he said that there's a a Volkswagen dealership just south down here on the five as you go into San Clemente. That was like the only building in the area when this place um, was, you know, when when Coast uh, started in 67. We didn't have the, I think, yeah, we had the property. This, we live in a completely different context. And, and I suggest to you that as we move forward, it's getting weirder and weirder and weirder. The culture is becoming more and more hostile. Our context, everything about the world be, uh, around us is changing. And yet, if we stick with the story, we'll be able to adapt. We'll be, to, we'll be able to roll with it. That even at 49 years of age, we'll still have the same commitment to the scriptures that Colonel Ridge Ryan instilled in us. Will still be a city on a hill, even if it looks radically different in some ways from what it was when it started out as a small Bible study. Neil, we, Neil just celebrated his uh, his fortieth birthday. He's uh, he's forty. He's uh, just yeah, that's that's right. That's a thing. Um, Neil, your first forty years were spent here in California. Looks like your next 40 are going to be in the South. Okay, what are you, 37? 36, 35, 34, 33, 31. Yeah, all right. I'll tell you, uh, I've lived in the South. The South is really weird. It's very different. Uh, people are, it's random. They're super polite. 
and uh, they always do what they say they're going to do. Culture shock. (laughs) You'd be like, oh yeah, man, maybe I'll see you there. And then if you don't show up, they're like, where were you? You said you're going to be here. I'm like, oh, maybe, you know. I'll be there at 4. You show up at 5.30, the party's over. It's done. Like, it was at 4. And then, uh, you know, they're very, very kind, very gracious. Uh, Neil, the context is changing, man. And your ministry is going to have to change. But the story is going to be the same. In fact, Neil, I would say that you've changed um, in, the, in the 10 years, well, really 14 years that you've been at this church. I think um, you're more gracious now than you were. I think that uh, you accept people um, in the most broken condition. And you love them where they're at. I think you're developing an intimacy with God um, that's a challenge to the people in this church. And so it should be inspiring that you're looking to know him face to face. You've changed, Neil, but the story's the same. Neil and Casey, when you go, this place will have changed, but the story's the same. Friends, we're entering a new era. era. But from its inception, this place has been about teaching the word of God, all of it. Not, Not just picking and choosing, but staying close to the text because we believe it is God's word to the world. This place has been a proclamation of grace. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been, no matter how awful the things are that you've done. You are freely accepted and forgiven and you are called to a new life. And we are a family. We share our lives. We see each other warts and all. And we pick each other up because we are truly brothers and sisters. I submit to you that the, ch- the culture around us is it's going nuts. But that is who we have always been since 1967. And it is who we will be when our grandchildren are the ones running the show. Everything's different, friends. Nothing's changing. Let's pray. God, we pray for Neil and Casey that you'll give them travel blessings and bring about new opportunities for ministry, new opportunities to share your gracious salvation in Tennessee. We pray, God, that the story of this church will continue on, that we adapt to new contexts, fresh expressions of your truth, fresh expressions of your love. Yet, at the core, the same church, committed to scripture, immersed in grace, living as family. God, you're good, and by your grace you can do these things. You have done them, and you will again. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.